Hello everyone. I'm uh, going to get right to it today because today I've got a, a pretty exciting uh, guy I'm talking about. Well, one I'm excited about anyway. Maybe you're not super excited, but one of my one of my personal favorite uh, philosophers, favorite theologians, somebody who just had a big impact on me uh, in my life and the way I view the world. A guy named Soren Kierkegaard. And I want to get right to it today because I, I'm going to give you a heads up. I might ramble a bit because I, I do get excited about this kind of stuff. I love I love philosophy. I love theology. I love uh, I love Kierkegaard, and I love a lot of the stuff he had to say. So I'm going to try to be as uh, succinct as I can, especially when I get into giving you some of the feel of, of what his writings were about. Uh, but just a heads up, I might get out of control. I'm going to try to control myself, but it, uh, hopefully I won't get too long with this and try to, to keep it. Uh, I really, I gave myself a little guideline here on how to try to keep it uh, keep it in bounds. So we'll see how I do with that. So today we're going to talk about Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish theologian, philosopher, Lutheran. <laughs> As a Lutheran myself, I, I kind of like that. Although a lot of what he talked about was raving against the Lutheran Church in Denmark, so maybe I shouldn't be so proud of that uh, in the long run. So Soren Kierkegaard, uh, born in Copenhagen, May fifth, eighteen thirteen. He's the youngest of seven children, big family. Uh, his father Michael came from poverty, but had risen up the ranks, worked hard, found a lot of success. Uh, he's a wealthy businessman. Uh, actually, so wealthy, in fact, that he gets to retire early, um, which was good and bad for Kierkegaard, as as we'll see. Uh, but but with all because of really all of Michael's success, uh, there was a pretty big issue. Uh, he was never a happy person. You know, melancholy is the word most often used to describe him. Um, maybe depressed would be a better one if you're not real familiar with melancholy. But he he was not a happy camper by any means. Um, he lived a life where he really did not think highly of himself, uh, of life in general. He was kind of racked by guilt. He had he was deeply religious, and, and he had his, a sincere belief in, in God, and he had a sincere belief that God didn't like him, uh, that he was cursed. Uh, this is for a couple reasons. One, when he was young, uh, he kind of rebelled against God and, and cursed God himself, which he uh, regretted very much so in his later days, uh, and he truly believed that because he had cursed God, that God had cursed him, and that him and his family were were all cursed. Uh, and then uh, with that, I guess, it comes really some, some guilt in the fact that uh, Kierkegaard's mother, Anne, uh, was not his first wife. His first wife died, and, and that was nothing to feel guilty about. Uh, but soon after her death, he knocked up, he got pregnant, uh, Kierkegaard's mom, Anne, uh, even though she was one of their servants. She was a maid at his house. Uh, and it was not a planned pregnancy by any means. She was really not somebody he was uh, planning to well, to get married to. Um, but after he got her pregnant, you know, he did the right thing and felt it was his duty to marry her. And they ended up having a, a you know, being married for many years and having a big family, but that still really racked him with guilt that he had done that. Um, and so he, yeah, he was full of melancholy. And uh, and he believed he was cursed, and he believed God was mad at him, and he had a hard time forgiving himself. And anyway, that is kind of the world, then, the family atmosphere uh, that Soren Kierkegaard is, is raised in. 
um, it's not a great spot for a kid to be when your dad is kind of always upset. Uh, and, and, and with this, I mean, his dad, Michael, honestly believed that, that he was cursed and, and he was open about this. And, and I mean, he even would talk about how he believed that his children would all die before him as part of that, that curse, which actually for five of the seven became true. Only Soren and his brother Peter outlived their father. So it was it was a tough environment to be raised in, not the happiest of childhoods uh, for young Soren. Um, you know, being around that, and his father was a huge influence on him, it, it just it deeply impacted him. And, and reflecting on his, his childhood, Kierkegaard would say he was born old, in that he was never able to have, you know, a carefree youth that many children do. He was born with the kind of burdens that most kids don't have um, because, well, that's how, who his dad was. And, it, and his dad was a big influence on him. His dad was around. He retired at 57, or he retired early, I said, and he had Soren at age 57. So he had Soren very late in, in life. Uh, it was an old dad, um, an old, depressed, sad dad. <laughs> that's kind of tough for young Soren. Uh, and so he was always around, uh, he, and he exposed Soren to a, a lot of the things that he was into, like theology and philosophy, uh, you know, great topics for a young kid getting uh, into uh, some deep, deep thought. But, but all of this impacted Soren, his, his melancholy, his attitude, his studies, uh, the way he treated his kids, you know, we know this... Uh, Soren was a big writer. Kierkegaard wrote a lot of, of, of journals, uh, and over 7,000 pages of his journals actually exist. And, and his father was a huge, huge topic in those journals. Um, his mom, interestingly, not like mentioned at all, ever. Even when she died, he writes in his journal on the day of her death and doesn't mention her death, um, which is odd for a lot of reasons. But his father's there all, all the time. Uh, so it had a huge influence on him, rubbed off on him, um, and we and we see that in who he becomes uh, as an adult. We're going to see this kind of play out throughout his life. It, it, again, it it led him to have to face serious issues early, uh, which in many ways was a good thing. It, it kind of led to what well became Soren's passion and his writing and philosophy and theology and 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 I mean his education was his dad really put a high emphasis on his education and made sure his children were thinkers um, and Soren was was definitely a thinker he was he excelled in schools he did very well he went to the best schools in Copenhagen uh, which is where he and his family lived and you know everything was well it wasn't great but he was doing well in that aspect of it anyway uh, he finally got out of kind of this sphere of his father's influence at age 18, where he goes off to the University of Copenhagen. Uh, it, it takes him 11 years to graduate from there. Um, this is for a few reasons, partly because or one of the big reasons is in 1835, he, he learns the source of his father's constant melancholy. You know, he, he finally learns why his dad's always so upset. He learns about his father cursing God. He learns about his dad knocking up his mom out of wedlock. And it all kind of devastates him. He really takes it hard. You know, he looked up to his father as like the embodiment of Christian piety. He's this holy, good man. I mean, he's got his issues, but he's he's good. And now all of a sudden, oh, well, maybe he's not so good. And 
And Kierkegaard describes this time as a, a great earthquake, this terrible upheaval that suddenly forced on me a new and infallible interpretation of all phenomena. Which is a nice way of saying it sent him into despair. Right? And he kind of didn't care about school or much. He neglected his study. And this went on for a couple years until finally in 1838 he's able to forgive and reconcile with his father. Uh, which unfortunately was shortly before his father's passing because his dad also dies in 1838. Um, his mother had passed in 1834. And like I said, five of the seven kids had died before their, his dad. So his, most of his siblings are gone. And so in, in 1838 now he's left to just him and his brother. He's alone. He's inherited a great amount of wealth, um, wealth which has enabled him to go to school for 11 years. I mean, his father has been paying off debts and, and paying his bills for, for all this time. And now he, he inherits much of this wealth with his brother. Uh, and he finally buckles down after his father's passing and finishes up school, ends up with a degree in theology. Um, he spent a lot of time studying literature and philosophy as well. He just he loved all that stuff. Uh, and now he's, he's ready to go out into life, graduating school. But he's not going out alone. Uh, it was there at school where he also met the love of his life, a young lady named Regina Olson, who was pretty young. She was about 15 when he uh, met her and, and really started courting her. Uh, he, he fell in love with her pretty quick. Uh, he was nine years her senior. Um, you know, that's not that unusual in that day and age. Uh, and in... 1840, so a couple years after his father's death, um, and a year before he finally graduates, uh, they become engaged, but the engagement doesn't last. Uh, not quite a year after they become engaged, Soren breaks it off. He, he breaks off the engagement. There's a lot of speculation on why this is. He doesn't say uh, for sure. Uh, he sends her an, a letter telling her that he, he's come to believe that he cannot make a girl happy. So why is that? Um, you know, from his own journals, we can gleam like there were, uh, there was stuff behind the scenes. You know, he talked about kind of a secrets that he doesn't want to have to reveal to her. Um, there's a lot of speculation. I mean, it could just be uh, he believes he's he's his father's son, and he's going to be filled with melancholy and sad and, and their whole life, and he doesn't want to put that on her. Um, he may have been worried he wouldn't have been able to support a, a wife and, and family living off his in, inheritance alone because uh, he doesn't seem to really want to get a job. He wants to be a writer. He wants to go write philosophy. Um, he doesn't want to have to buckle down and get a, a nine-to-five job and bring in a steady income. Um, so maybe that was part of it. Uh, there's a lot of speculation on his sexuality, on, on what could have been going on there, if that was a part of it. You know, we really, we just, we don't know. There's a lot of theories out there. But we do know he breaks it off. For whatever reason, he breaks it off. Um, and it he definitely is about him. And that's the way he phrases it to her. And that's the way he wants to portray it to the world. He wants to make sure that nobody thinks there was something wrong with her, that she did anything wrong. So he actually goes around kind of, he like, spends his nights out on the town pretending to be this playboy, this womanizer, picking up girls at the bars and, and all of this stuff, you know, kind of to make himself look like, look, he, I'm the problem in the relationship, you know. We're breaking up because of me, not because of her. Um, that's not his nature at all. But but he goes out there and, and puts on a show for people to, and people do start to talk, and they're like, what's going on with Soren? And what, what's he doing? And like, poor Regina, he's, you know, going behind her back with all these women. Um, and so this is all an act, though, to make it clear that 
that it's not her fault, that this is something Soren does, and he doesn't think people are going to understand his real reasoning, which, you know, we really don't understand because we're not entirely sure what it is. Um, but it's clear this, uh, uh, this relationship and breaking it off has a big effect on him, right? So after he ends it, uh, he goes to Berlin, um, and he just starts to write, and he writes, and he goes on this, this flurry of writing uh, over the next five years, just pumping out amazing theological and philosophical writings. Like in 1843, which is when he publishes his first book, he publishes five others with it, right? Six books in a year he publishes there in, in Berlin. And this is some of his best work, honestly, some of this early stuff. He writes uh, his first published book is called Either Or, um, a brilliant, brilliant philosophical book. Uh, he, not long after that, he publishes Fear and Trembling, still one of uh, really one of the better, best theological books you're going to find out in the world today. Um, and so he's pumping out a lot of great stuff now at this time. Um, interestingly enough, he's not doing it in his own name. He's writing all of this under pseudonyms, uh, under fake names. Um, either or, for example, he publishes under the name Victor Eremita, which is Latin for Victorious Hermit, which is great. Uh, Fear and Trembling gets published under the name Johannes de Salentio, which is just another spectacular fake name. Um, he actually goes on to use quite a few other pseudonyms. He, he publishes, there's very few books he publishes under the same name. Um, later in life, we see some of it, but uh, most of them are, are different, uh, different pseudonyms, different fake names. Uh, he used these for a couple of reasons. First, he uses it as a kind of a literary device. You know, each author is presenting a different worldview, a different viewpoint. Um, some of these viewpoints might be Kierkegaard, some might be a little different. You know, that was a big thing he's trying to do. He's trying to just give out vast array of ideas. Uh, and so to do that, he has different authors who have different viewpoints. I mean, even in either or, we have different viewpoints throughout from different people, different pseudonyms, different names. Throughout the book, Victor Eremita is kind of the narrator more than anything. Right? And so he's getting just a lot of different ideas out there. That's part of it. Part of it is uh, he, he doesn't seem to feel like he could write under his name. I mean, he's a kid just out of school. Nobody knows him. He doesn't think his name is established enough for people to pay attention to. And so he writes under these, these pseudonyms to kind of, one, to give himself some anonymity, but also to, I don't know, hopefully not. So people aren't like, oh, it's just some dumb kid writing, maybe. It's hard to say exactly what was all going through his mind as he does this, but, but again, he has his reasons, I'm sure. We just don't know what they all are. Uh, in 1846, after publishing a whole lot of books in the, this little span of time, uh, he seems ready to take a break from writing. He wants to, uh, he's, I mean, he's got his degree and his master's in theology. He's ready to go and become a parish minister, uh, kind of retire from, from all of that other stuff and just settle down in the country it seems to be his goal. Uh, but he doesn't get there because... Uh, what happens is he kind of he starts this massive feud with a local paper called the Cors the Corsair. Now the Corsair is this satirical publication, uh, primarily mocked public figures in Denmark at the time. Um, used a lot of cartoons and stuff of that nature. It's not a it's not a serious publication. Um, 
And initially it was kind of complimentary of Kierkegaard's writings, uh, which actually seemed to, to bother him. Uh, he saw himself and his work as serious and doesn't want to be associated with the satirical publication that he seems a little bit, you know, vulgar, not, not what he's trying to accomplish. So he tries to distance himself from the paper. Um, and maybe he doesn't even believe that they're sin sincere, given their satirical nature. And, and so he writes, again, under a pseudonym, he writes kind of an attack on, on the publication itself, on the Corsair. They know it's him, though. And so this starts a, a series of vicious attacks now from them against Kierkegaard uh, himself, which lasts throughout the course of the next year. And so week after week in their pages, uh, he is just personally ridiculed. Uh, there, he, his appearance, his demeanor, his wealth, and where it came from, his, his writings, his family—all of it is is attacked. Right? He's often joked about, you know, his long nose and his thin legs. Like they really do harp on his appearance quite a bit, and, and it gets to the point where Soren stops going out. He used to enjoy going for regular walks around the city. Uh, he called it his people bath, but now he doesn't do it. He doesn't want to go out in public for fear of being recognized and ridiculed and laughed at. So he is, he's deeply hurt, deeply affected uh, by these attacks. He retreats inwardly. I mean, he doesn't want to go out and be a parish pastor anymore because, again, that's going out in public and putting himself in, in a place where he can be made fun of. Uh, and so he, what he does is he just stays inside and goes back to writing because you don't have to go out in public to write. And he kind of does believe that God has now destined him solely to write, right? that maybe he was never supposed to go out in public and be a public figure and be a pastor. He's just supposed to write. And it's his responsibility to put pen to paper um, in order to enhance what God is doing in the world, in order to enhance Christianity, mainly by criticizing Christianity, uh, because that's what he, he takes up writing uh, in this next phase and really for the rest of his life. Uh, his writing becomes kind of scathing critiques of modern Christianity, which he has a lot of issues with. Uh, and, and he believes it has gone very far away from, you know, true Christianity, New Testament Christianity, which he sees very vastly different from the church around him. And so he, he begins writing and he sees himself now as this defender of, of what true Christianity uh, should be. And this time he, he largely writes under his own name, not entirely though, he still writes under some pseudonyms. Uh, it's, at this point we get the great pseudonym Anticlamacus, which again, I love his pseudonyms. Um, but he really does see himself as the defender of, of true Christianity and in counter to, again, the church and the Christianity he's witnessing around him. Uh, Denmark is has a state church. Um, it's the Lutheran Church is their state religion, so there's no competition. Everybody just kind of assumed, you know, you're a Lutheran, you're a Christian, that's what you are. Uh, and as Kierkegaard sees it, this has allowed them then to become just lazy, right? Um, they're lazy. Um, they don't really take the teachings of Christ into account. They just kind of rest on the fact that they're they're Christians by, well, by being a part of the state, by being Danish. Um that they don't fully understand what it means to be Christian, that they've kind of lost the suffering, that they've lost the need for, for action, um, that they've just lost what it truly means to be a part uh, of Christ's church. 
and and part of this is he sees he doesn't like kind of the universal nature of of a state church where everybody belongs and everybody's Christian. Right? He sees Christianity as a very individual affair, as as a, as a relationship between each believer and and Christ. Right? And he views the Christians around him as having very little concern for having an actual relationship with Jesus, just resting on the fact that they belong to church and they don't need to do anything else or know anything else. Right? Lukewarm Christians, Christians who risk nothing, Christians who have no fear of not being Christians, Christians who know, have no faith that moves them to actions, Christians who know the doctrine, who know the teachings, but that knowledge does nothing to change how they live. Right? You see Christ as a school subject, not as a personal relationship. Those are Kierkegaard's complaints. So so what he does is he sets out to to reintroduce Christianity into this Christendom, which he sees in the world around him, uh, with, again, just some brilliant, brilliant theological writings. Now, I, like I said, I've restrained myself so far into not actually talking about his writings, uh, and this is intentional. Kierkegaard was brilliant, and his writings are, are massive and extensive, and I really am trying not to go down into a rabbit hole. Uh, and so, you know, Fear and Loathing, great book. Either or, great book. Uh, I could spend hours talking to you about either one of them. Uh, but I want to limit myself here into, into talking about some of his writings, uh, and specifically about some of his Christian writings. Um, I mean, that's kind of the nature of, of this podcast. So I, I do want to look at some of what he wrote. And I, I am going to try to limit myself here and so it doesn't get into too much. Um, but I want to read you some excerpts from, from some of his writings. Um, most of this comes from some of this later period, but, uh, but it's brilliant stuff. All right, so in, in talking about Christianity he sees around him, we're going to start there and looking at kind of his critiques uh, of the Christianity he sees. Um, he writes, When Christianity entered the world, people were not Christians. And the difficulty was to become a Christian. Nowadays, the difficulty in becoming a Christian is that one must cease to become a Christian. Again, the, the Christianity he sees is not true Christianity. Right? Uh, he writes, There was a time when one could almost be afraid to call himself a disciple of Christ because it meant so much. Now one can do it with complete ease because it means nothing at all. Christianity has been made so completely devoid of character that there is really nothing to persecute. The chief trouble with Christians, therefore, is that no one wants to kill them anymore. Ouch. Right. Uh, Christianity is a society of people who call themselves Christian because they occupy themselves with obtaining information about those who long ago submitted themselves to Christ's examination Spiritless, forgetting that they themselves are up for examination. Again, it's, it's very clear his issues here. Right? That this thing they're calling Christianity has no substance. That there's nothing to it. Again, he says, Today's Christianity is a matter of being elevated for an hour once a week, just as in the theater. It is now used to hearing, used to hearing everything without the remotest notion of doing something. It's just hearing. On Sunday, it is taught that Christ is everyone's example. And if anyone on Monday were to talk about Christ as his example, people would call this presumption, terrible arrogance, and so on. Consequently, most preaching is nothing more than Sunday jargon. That's just what a preacher like myself wants to hear. 
Right? These are some scathing critiques, and I could go on and on here. Right? The Christianity he was seeing seemed to just be going through the paces. It seemed to be just there with no risk, with not having to do anything, with not having to lose anything, with not having to give up anything. Uh, it's just there, and it doesn't have any effect on your actual life. There, there's no action with it. It's just, it's, a, it's kind of an academic, it's there, it's a belief. You can know about Jesus, but you don't actually have to know Jesus uh, himself. The, these are the critiques he's making. And so to this, he, he doesn't just critique the system, but he offers an alternative, right? What he views as, as true Christianity, which again is, is a very personal act in his eyes. And, and actually he says one be, best becomes a Christian without Christianity, he says. So again, it's not about the church universal. It's about your individual relationship with Christ. We don't need Christianity. We need Christians. And so for Kierkegaard to become a Christian, it takes, it takes action. It takes denial. It takes suffering even. He writes that not until a person has become so wretched that his only consolation is to die. Not until then does Christianity truly begin. A human being is great and at his highest only when before God he recognizes that he is nothing in himself. Christianity is not the doctrine of denying oneself. Christianity is to deny oneself. I love that one. It's not the doctrine of denying oneself. It's actually to deny oneself. You can understand the belief, but if you don't do it, you can understand the teaching, but if you don't do it, you're not, well, you're not really it. The difficulty is not to understand what Christianity is, but to become and to be a Christian, he writes. You can understand Christianity, but that's different than actually doing it than actually becoming and being a Christian. He says Christianity entered the world not to be understood, but to be existed in. And he says that, that God never asks for admirers, worshipers, or adherents. No, Jesus calls disciples. It is not adherents of a teaching, but followers of a life Christ is looking for. So it's, it's about how you actually do this stuff. Right? That's what he says. Right? Christ gives us all these commands, all these laws, tells us how to live, and then you actually have to live it. Right? You actually have to live it. What is Christianity, Kierkegaard asks? Simple, to be like Christ. Right? To be a Christian is not a title. It is not about having the right beliefs or saying the right things. For Kierkegaard, it has to be lived. Right? And it has to come with, with denial of of the pleasures of life sometimes. It has to come with service. It has to come with being Christ for others. Right? That's what it means to truly be Christian. He says if you suffer because you do good, because you are in the right, because you are loving, if it is because you are for the good that you live despised, persecuted, ridiculed, in poverty, then you will find that you do not doubt Christ's resurrection. Why? Because you need it. Right? You need it. So you need to get to a point in your life where you know you need Christ's resurrection. Not a life of comfort, but of service, of sacrifice. Now, with all this, you might come to the conclusion that Kierkegaard is really getting into works righteousness. Uh, but actually, that, that's not the case. Right? He, he's very clear that action 
must happen for us to be Christian. But he's also very clear in his writings that that first act is, is done by God. Right? He, he writes that it's not good works that make a good person, but the good person who does good works. And one becomes good by faith alone. Consequently, faith, first of all, it is by faith that one does truly good works. Right? No amount of striving can earn salvation, he writes. Therefore, there is grace. And again, he writes, so your salvation comes through faith. Right? That's, that's what matters. Right? It's through grace. It's through faith, not through works. These are very Lutheran ideas, so they are rubbing off on him. Right? That grace must come. But with that grace still needs to be works. Right? So they work in tandem. He writes that grace has been pushed into an entirely wrong direction. We use it to slow off the requirements of the law. God's requirement is and remains the same, unaltered, perhaps even sharpened under grace. The difference is, under the law, my salvation is linked to the condition of fulfilling its requirements. Under grace, I am freed from this concern, but God's requirement remains. God's requirement remains, even under grace. And so, so it's... It's this whole way of life, of, of understanding what Christ has done for you, what God has done for you, which is very much a part of it. All of this starts through God's love. He writes extensively about God's love. He, even, he goes so far, this is again a quote from him, to love and to be loved is God's only passion. That God is love means that he will do everything to help you love him. That is to change you into his likeness. And so God loves us. God sent his son to die for us. God saves us, he talks about. Right? Salvation comes through Christ and what he does on the cross. But, but that doesn't eliminate that God's commands are still there and that we're required to go out and, and be Christ in the world and to share the love that God has given us. That's... That's the heart of what he's trying to get across in, in a lot of his writing here. Right? And so, so there is this requirement to go out and to act and to love. Uh, here's some more great, I just, I love his love stuff because personally that's kind of my stuff. But here's, he has some great, great quotes on what it means to, to go out and love. Uh, he says, he who sees his brother in need yet shuts his heart. Yes, at the same time, he shuts God out. Love to God and love to neighbor are like two doors that open simultaneously. It is impossible to open the one without opening the other. Christian love teaches love for all people, unconditionally all, he says. To love another in spite of weakness and errors and imperfections is not perfect love. No, to love is to find them lovable in spite of and together with their weakness and errors and imperfections. The task is not to find lovable objects, but to find the object before you lovable, whether given or chosen, and to be able to continue finding this one lovable no matter how that person changes. To love is to love the person one sees. Christian love loves despite imperfection and weakness. I love that stuff. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, it is just such, such great stuff. Again, this is really, this is much of my own personal theology comes out of, out of these ideas. 
right? And so for Kierkegaard, there has to be action, there has to be love, and it's love for all people, regardless of their problems. And that's not what he's seeing in the church around him. He sees people, you know, pretending like they're they're better than others, pretending like they're good, without actually doing the work that a good person should do. He sees people resting on on their laurels, resting on God's forgiveness, even without doing the other stuff, right? Without doing the other stuff, because once you're forgiven, once you know God's love, you well, then you are required to go out and love the people around you. You're required to act to be Christ again. And so Kierkegaard is is pumping this stuff out, just pumping it out. And I'm pretty proud of myself. I think I did okay. I could, <laughs> getting into his writings. Uh, but for a couple of years, his he he really starts a, right, amping up his attacks on the church as time goes on. Uh, his attacks get significantly stronger after uh, the death of a guy named Bishop. Uh, he was well, he was a bishop, Jacob Peter Minster, uh, who was actually a friend of his father and and an old family pastor from his childhood, and so that kind of tempered him a little bit. Um, you know, he strongly disagreed with Minster and what he was doing, what he was about, but he also kind of respected him and, and at least respected his father and their relationship. But after uh, after he dies, then he really pulls no punches and his attacks uh, go very, very hard uh, at not just Christianity as a whole, but singling out Danish Lutheranism, the state church, its leaders. Uh, he particularly uh, is kind of upset at this uh, the new this new bishop a guy named Hans Lassen Martinson uh, who spoke at, at Minster's funeral uh, where during which he called Minster uh, a witness for the truth which really set Kierkegaard off because as far as he was concerned he was nothing about the truth everything he was doing was wrong and so he, he writes these scathing critiques of the church in, in newspapers um, and his he has this regular published pamphlet called the instant. Um, he is just unloading on the church and the world around him on this fake Christianity he saw uh, that it was promoting. Uh, and this goes on until, until his death, which unfortunately comes all too soon. Um, one day he's out on the street, walking along, and he just collapses. Uh, he's taken to the hospital. He stayed there for about a month. Uh, interestingly, I love this tidbit, the priest comes in to offer of communion and he refuses because he wants nothing to do with this church system that he sees so flawed. Um, but he never recovers. He never recovers uh, after this fainting spell. Uh, and he dies on November 11th, 1855. Uh, he's only 42 years old. Like many things in his life, we're not entirely sure what was going on with his health. Uh, tuberculosis is the most likely cause for his early death, and, and a lot of people think that's probably what he was dealing with. Um, in dying, he, he gave all his possessions, which he doesn't have a lot of left because he spent most of his wealth you know, not you know, living life without having to have a real job. Um, but he gives everything he has left to, to Regina. That woman he broke off his engagement with. So he clearly still felt love for her till the end. Interestingly enough, she doesn't accept it because she's married and has her own thing going on, so she doesn't want it. Uh, but that's who he leaves it to. 42 years, though, uh, is all he lived. Not, not a long 
life. I'm 40 years old right now, so I'm hopefully I've got a lot more than two more years left. And yet in those 42 years, he leaves behind this collections of writing so vast and so brilliant. And I, I barely, barely, barely touch the surface on it. I mean, it is a vast, a vast selection of writings that he left behind. Um, and it is all good. <laughs> It's all the stuff written under his own name, the stuff written under his pseudonyms. Just, he is one of the greatest voices of, of the 19th century, just in terms of philosophers and theologians and, and thinkers. Um, really, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest, greatest voices of, of, of all time. Uh, a voice that's still very relevant to Christianity today because some of those critiques I got into earlier, they definitely still apply. Uh, to modern Christianity, uh, which really this was, uh, that's what he was seeing happening. He kind of saw what Christianity was was turning into and, and has turned into, and it still is, uh, largely in many places and for many people. I mean, this we may not have a state church, but this concept of being born into Christianity and just being saved by that and, and not worrying about having to actually live as a Christian, I mean, you still see that uh, happening. Well, all over in the church and in Christianity today. And so his teachings are still very relevant, very relevant. And that's that's why he's had such an impact on me. You know, I, when I read his stuff, uh, it resonates. It, it resonated with me when I read it for the first time when I was a college student. It still resonates with me today. And I, and I would hope it would resonate with you uh, as well. So go out and, uh, and get a Kierkegaard book. If you don't have any, go go read some Kierkegaard. Um, I don't know. Or if you want to find out more, maybe if you know who I, if you know me personally, get in touch. I can, I'll read you some more passages. Uh, I've got lots and lots of stuff I could get into when it comes to his philosophy and theology. It is, uh, it's brilliant stuff. Uh, see, now I'm tempted to get into more. I feel like I could go down and get into a lot more stuff, but uh, I'm limiting it. But, but that was Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, this great, great thinker who was with us for for not a long time, but who left behind a, a legacy of writings that still really, really uh, has an impact on many, uh, many Christians, many thinkers, many theologians today, and hopefully you could be one of them. All right, so there's Kierkegaard. So until next time, uh, have a good one, everybody.